You're listening to the Unveiling Mormonism podcast from PursueGod.org. Join us every Monday as we pull back the curtain on Mormon history, culture, and doctrine. Find more resources to continue the conversation at PursueGod.org forward slash Mormonism. Okay, Bo and KD, so as Mormons, you, you studied stuff for years, but you kept putting it away into something, Bo, I've heard, you, I've heard you call it your box of doubts. Talk about what this is and what you put in your box of doubts as a Mormon and whether that's a thing that the average listener who's a Mormon probably has in their closet too. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, so I, I did, I had a box of doubts and it was a figurative box of doubts. And anytime I'd come across something that was confusing or that I, I thought was contrary to what I believed or what I was taught, I would put it in this box and forget about it as best I could. Right. And that, that's, that's how I trained myself sort of to, to continue believing even, even though the more that I studied and the more that I heard about the more I questioned. And, and this is very typical for members of, um, of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. For, for the Mormon community, uh, there is so much information available now uh, that, well, so much history available now. And, and the history is hard to avoid. Um, and, and when you study it, <laughs> more and more doubts creep in and, and you, start to, you start to get pretty confused. And so for me, yeah, well, there was this box of doubts, right? And, and um, you know, before my mission, I had a few, not too many, went on a mission, came back. Um, on my mission, obviously, there were, there were some doubts that, that, that would creep in, uh, you know, put those doubts in the box. And then, and then eventually, when I was teaching seminary for the LDS Church, I was teaching full-time, so I was teaching during the day to high school students. And, and that's when I studied, like really, really studied church history and and that was when I, uh, my box of doubts overflowed and uh, caused me to to need to stop teaching seminary. But I, I still I didn't leave the church. I just put that box away again, right? And so you'll you'll see that for for members of the church everywhere. I mean, there, there's so many people that do this today that consider themselves th- themselves members of the church, consider themselves Christian. Um. And, and, and they're clinging on to just like a few core doctrines of the Mormon church. And then basically everything else goes in that box of doubts and they're just okay with it hanging out in the corner. Now for you, would you, would you come home, Bo, and would you say, all right, Katie, I read this thing or I heard this thing or I'm having these doubts. Like, like do husband it for the, well, first of all, talk about it for you two, but then, and then talk about it just in general. Like, is this something that a husband and wife would be honest with each other about? That's a good question. I, I did not bring that box of doubts home. No, I, I left it tucked away in a corner. And, and so I, because there, there's a lot riding on um, the decision to stay or leave the, in the LDS church, right? Because your, your marriage is based on, like we were married in the temple. Our marriage was based on promises that we made to, to ourselves and um, other covenants that we made in the temple. And so there's a lot riding on that decision. And so for me, it was doubts that I felt like I should just deal with on my own. I didn't want to drag her along that, that ride. It's not very fun to doubt um, and, and to learn about a bunch of things that you had no idea existed and to learn that it's real history really blows your mind. And so, uh, so I didn't, I didn't bring Katie along for the ride on those most of the time. No, you, you didn't, but I had my own box of doubts too. And I think that for us, I'm not, I'm not sure we can speak about other couples, other Mormon couples, but we weren't really, we didn't bring those home. We didn't talk about them to each other until years and years later when, you know, we started to sort of be like, okay, I don't know about this. You know, we were a little, maybe more comfortable and secure in our relationship. You know, I, I watched the I don't know if I remember if it was on Netflix or what was it called Under the Banner of Heaven. I read the book years ago when it came out. And then and then the show came out, the miniseries came out. And I thought they did a really good job of showing 
kind of the main character, the the guy from Hacksaw Ridge, I can't remember his name, but the main character from the from the show, he was the he was like the cop or the detective or something. And he, you know, he's doing the interviews with with the the Lafferty boys. Am I getting this right? Am I getting these names right? Yeah, I think it's Andrew Garfield, right? And uh, Andrew Garfield. Yeah, okay, that sounds right. He was he was awesome, by the way, in Hacksaw Ridge. I thought that was a great or Spider Man, you know. Oh, that's hot. see, that shows the kind of movies that I'm into. I didn't even think about Spider Man. <laughs> well, I thought he did a great job. I don't know. What do you guys think? I thought he did a great job depicting that probably the tension because he had his box of doubts, right? I mean, that was the whole. That was what it was all about. I I thought like being real about this guy who's interviewing these fundamental like wacko fundamentalist Mormons and realizing that they were closer to Joseph Smith's Mormonism than he was. That's what they kept saying to him. And you could tell it was a real struggle for him. And he goes home and his wife isn't ready to talk about it. Is that a, is that a legitimate dynamic there, do you think, for couples, even some couples listening to this? Oh, I, yeah, absolutely. In fact, I'll, I'll bet there's a bunch of people listening that uh, you know, their, their other half doesn't want to listen right now to, to the podcast that happens all the time. And, and, and even for, so for me, obviously I got a lot of friends that are still the yes. And a, a lot of them, um, come to me about the doubts that they have, uh, and their spouse doesn't know yet. Right. Or, or their spouse isn't, isn't ready to kind of confront some of those doubts, even though they have similar ones. So, I mean, you see, you see all sorts of things and really it's just, uh, it's because the the Mormon Church over the last two hundred years has done a, a really good job of um, controlling the narrative, and for years that worked until uh, good old Google came out, right? And all of a sudden, you could figure out or search history on your own. So, in an effort to um, not really fix the history, but in an effort to respond to all the information that was out there, the Mormon church obviously for years has been saying like, Hey, don't read anti-Mormon literature. It'll lead you astray. You'll leave the church. If you read these things, they're apostate, they're, they're lying. Da, da, da. And then recently the church had to come out and actually admit to a lot of church history in the gospel topics essays. And we, we've talked about these essays um, on this podcast before, but for me, my box of doubts uh, got 10 times bigger <laughs> when I read the Gospel Topics essays. So a lot of people, and, and I would bet a lot of people that have listened to, to some of the episodes on this podcast have um, have probably read the CES letter. I actually still have never read the CES letter. Uh, and, and the reason for that is because I was always told that it was anti-Mormon literature. Uh, the CES letter came out when I was teaching seminary for the LDS Church, and I refused to read it. Right. But I did read the church's response essentially to the CES letter, which is the Gospel Topics essays. Right. And they wrote about the Book of Mormon translation. Um, they wrote about the Seer Stone. They wrote about the Book of Abraham translation. They wrote about polygamy. They wrote about the first vision accounts, race and the priesthood, temples and Freemasonry. They wrote about all this stuff that I had always kind of like heard about randomly. Like I would be teaching somebody on my mission and they'd be like, yeah, but did you know that Joseph Smith had 40 wives? And I'd be like, uh, no man, he didn't. But anyways, you know, here's a book of Mormon. Or, you know, I'd be teaching seminary and people would ask me questions about masonry or whatever. And so finally I was able to study these topics from a church approved source. And all that did for me was open up just a massive, uh, can of worms that, that led to, to more and more doubts. So, Bo, where where did your before the Gospel Topics essays? Where did you get your information from about all that other stuff? Like, is it something that would be talked about often at a ward, or is it is it just that whenever it would come up, it would just be the bishop or someone someone in leadership would say, "Come on, that's you know that's not that's not what Joseph Smith was really about." Yeah, I mean the. That's exactly it. So, so I, I guess two parts, two part answer. One, it, they didn't come up often. Uh, it was usually either in, in a random conversation, right? Someone would bring up some sort of anti and then, you know, I would go to like the bishop or my dad or whoever, and they'd be like, oh no, they're, they're off base, you know, or whatever. Or, or uh, if it did come up in a church setting, it was usually 
yeah, the priesthood leader who was attacking the anti-Mormon, making sure that everybody knew that it was false and here's why, right? So, so never was it, uh, I was never, I guess, open to, to listening to any of this type of information before until it was published by the church because I was so worried that if I gave room for quote-unquote anti-Mormon literature that I would be led astray. And, and obviously since then, I've, I've now realized that it's not anti-Mormon, it's actually just history. <laughs> um, and, and the more and more history that the church publishes, the, the more it lines up with, you know, what, what all of these um, authors and, and historians have been saying for so many years. So what, give me, let's make a, just a quick little list of anti-Mormon literature. We're talking about like Fawn, Fawn Brody's book, right? Yeah, No Man Knows My History. That's, that's a, probably the, the most prominent. And it's funny because, because that book, so she was excommunicated for writing that book. She was actually a member of the church at the time. Uh, she was a, a historian and um, has a, t- a, a number of historical um, books that she's written that are outside of, you know, the LDS category, but, but wrote No Man Knows My History, which is essentially a, a historical account of, of Joe Smith's life. She's excommunicated for it. And then years, years and years later, uh, the, you know, the, the book Rough Stone Rolling comes out by a church-approved historian, and that's still sold in, in Deseret Book today. And the funny thing is that that book um, actually, you know, kind of, kind of credits No Man Knows My History for a lot of the source material because it, they, they reference the same, uh, the same uh, historical accounts, the same historical records. They, they reference the same things. So the, the, maybe the, the spin on it is a tiny bit different, but the information presented is, is very, very similar. Okay, so let me get this straight. So rough stone rolling is not anti-Mormon literature. Yeah, it's it's still published in like Deseret Book. And and Richard Bushman is is an LDS historian. And he wasn't ever disciplined or anything for no, his no. information. He was okay. encouraged to publish this information. Yeah. I remember I, I I the first time I visited Utah was my freshman year of college. And I came out here for a month and I knocked on doors and invited people to to a to a brand new church that was getting started in the area. It was funny. It was like the it was like the the Mormons had their chance to shut the door in the face of a non-Mormon missionary. I'm sure they enjoyed that. So I got the experience, Bo, probably what you experienced on your mission of just rejection after rejection. <laughs> oh yeah. Lots good. of lots of knocking yeah. doors, lots of doors slammed in the face. You'd think that Mormons would would have been kinder though, given they probably had kids out on missions. But. I know that's kind of what I, yeah, that's what I came to learn afterward. I'm like, wait a second. Yeah, that's, I mean, I try to be, Tracy and I try to be super gracious to people when they come and invite them in. And they usually don't, they usually don't try anymore, I guess. Maybe that's for another topic. I think we've been, I don't know, X'd out or something. I think we're, we're unconvertible or non-convertible or incorrigible. I'm not sure what the word is, but, but I think they've stopped trying to convert us. But I do remember all the way back in college that I, I read I read No Man Knows My History, and I felt like, yeah, I felt like it was just history. I mean, Fawn Brody is a historian. She's, so I, I do think that's interesting that that was blacklisted, because in the Christian church, I can't think of anything, I mean, maybe some churches in the South might blacklist some books, and we would, of course, tell our kids not to look at pornography and stuff like that, but in terms of information, like we'd say, read, yeah, we're not afraid. God's word will stand up. God's truth is going to stand up to anything that's out there. So I, I don't, my, my youth pastors growing up never told me, oh, don't read that book or don't read that book. I didn't, I never told my kids that. Um, cause I don't know, that just seems, that seems suspect. And, and I think young people today and even just, you know, young adults today and, People, you know, folks like your age, 30s, 40s, all these, like, I think people are going to be like, is that, is that controlling to not let me read something and make up my own mind about something, you know? And yeah. it did kind of backfire, I think, on the church in the end. Yeah, I mean, one, it is controlling. <laughs> they were trying their best to control information. And two, it did backfire, backfired in a big way. I mean, we see 
people leaving the Mormon church in droves right now, more than, more than they've ever lost. And it's because the history is, is, is now out there and they can't really deny the history. All they can do is try to spin it at this point. But anyways, um, is it, let me, let me ask is under the banner of heaven on the blacklist? <laughs> you know, I've, I've never seen or read under the banner of heaven, okay. um, probably because it strikes me as like anti-Mormon. <laughs> yeah. It, but it but, wasn't like officially black because it's, I yeah, I mean, so. it, I, I would imagine like a mainline Mormon isn't necessarily going to say that that's about them because it's like fundamentalist Mormons and it's just kind of right. I don't know. I would just imagine that maybe the mainline church would say, no, that's fine, but that's not us. I Those Lafferty that, boys aren't us, you know? Yeah. I mean, e- even in just in chatting with people who have seen it that are, that are still the yes, typically that's what they'll say is like, yeah, it was interesting. I mean, they took it pretty extreme and obviously that's not who we are, but yeah, it was an entertaining show, right? Is what you'll hear. But, but yeah. The, and then the, the CES letter is at least in in modern times is probably the most famous piece of anti-mormon literature out there uh just given how thorough um and referenceable referenceable i can't say that word but uh how many references there we go uh it it has uh and how easily it spread in the age of the internet right so 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 many people my age so many people have read the CES letter, and and that's what led them to to sort of build upon this box of doubts. Now, what would you guys say, okay, to our Christian listeners? I mean, give give some advice as people who, when you were Mormons, what would have turned you off? Because we have a lot of listeners who are like, this is super helpful for me. Uh, you know, I've got Mormon friends, I've got Mormon coworkers, kids who go to school with my kids who are Mormon. And I, I think it's just really good to communicate. I, isn't it true that you can go, there's some Christians can definitely turn Mormons off because they're being too, maybe too combative or or buying someone, no man knows my history and giving it to him for Christmas or something <laughs> like that. Give us, give our Christian listeners some advice on, you know, I mean, I, you know, like what, how to approach a Mormon, even when it comes to trying to introduce a box of doubts. I think that for me, a focus on a biblical truth would have been a good approach, like common ground. What I would have thought as, as a Mormon would have been common ground for us and building a relationship, like a friendship with that Mormon or that person. And then maybe, you know, talking to them about biblical truths and maybe just pointing out sometimes in a very kind way, like, Hey, that's actually, that's not the right context for that scripture. You know, let me, let me show you if that's where your relationship's at, but getting into, um, the history can get really weedy. Like it, you can get Mormons are taught to shut down at that point. We're taught anything, anytime they try to bring up our history, they don't understand it. They're trying to attack us. They don't understand where the real history and we're just taught to our brains shut down really. And how, what is, what is that look like when a, when a Mormon, when a Mormon has been pushed too far, what does that look like? What are you taught to do at that point? You bear your testimony. <laughs> that is exactly what you're taught to do. Mm-hmm. So you you get backed into a corner essentially by information that is historic that historical information. This happened to me so many times on my mission, where <laughs> the only thing I could do is say, "Well, I know that Joseph Smith's a prophet, mm-hmm. and the Spirit has borne witness to me that the Book of Mormon is a true script, uh, you know, scriptural record." And and that I've and prayed Joseph about Smith it. Was, right. And, and Joseph, Joseph Smith, Smith is a prophet. Is a prophet. Yeah. Yeah. Bingo. And so and and, you, and the and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints is the one true church. Hey, is that isn't that all like, part? Sounds like you back people into a few corners in your day. <laughs> I just I remember <laughs> when we had the missionaries for for months come over and give lessons. Yeah. We we and I, maybe I was I felt like we were being gracious about it, but many 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 times. 
a missionary, not both of them, one of them, the weaker one, would bear her. It was it was girls. They would bear, she would bear her testimony, and the next week she was had been reassigned, and someone else was with the missionary. So yeah, it happened many times. That's awesome. Yeah. So, but that's that's what you do, right? Is when when all else fails, you bear your testimony, and and really what you're taught as a missionary is, hey, nobody can nobody can uh, deny a testimony, right? Mm. And and look, I'm not here to deny anybody's what, what what they consider to be a spiritual witness. I'm not here to deny it either. What I am here to explain, though, is that is or or maybe just help people understand is that this box of doubts doesn't have to be ignored. Um, mm-hmm. It doesn't have to go completely. Uh, you don't have to live your life thinking that you believe in Jesus when uh, when there's there's this entire Christian world that uh, of a biblical understanding that could be opened up to somebody who who sees you know the, the history of the LDS church for what it is um and and finds jesus so anyway i it, it is it is interesting though when yeah when, when you're backed into a corner or, or you feel like you don't have the information the go-to is to to bear whatever testimony you, you have and obviously what you're taught from a young age in fact if if you were to go to fast and testimony meeting on sunday Mm-hmm. Uh, what you're going to hear is, I know the church is true. I know Joseph Smith was a prophet. And uh, what else do they say? And I love my mom and dad. That's what you're going to hear <laughs> <laughs> um, on Fast Testimony Meeting, like clockwork, from everybody age 8, 12, 16, 22, right? And on up. Okay, so, okay, so you're trained to, you're kind of, it's like a cultural thing in your church services, okay? But... But Bo, you said, or maybe Katie, you said you were taught to do it. So are you actually taught to do like, hey, if you're out there talking to someone and they, they bring something up that that you can't answer or sounds anti-Mormon, here's what you just bear your testimony, just like you've been doing since you were eight in the ward. Is that like, are they, are you taught, were you taught as a missionary in training, Bo, or, or is it even just more fundamental than that? You're just taught like even in the ward. So you're, there's several talks from conference that, that talk about the importance of bearing your testimony when all else fails, but actually in the missionary handbook, well, in preach my gospel, uh, it says specifically to do this, uh, by the way, stay tuned. We're going to be doing a Preach My Gospel series. I'm excited about it. But yeah, mm. so in, in Preach My Gospel, it says to, to make sure that you bear your testimony, for example, when, uh, when it gets contentious, when you don't have any information, or da da, da. So yeah, that's, that's an important tactic that, uh, that missionaries use for sure. Okay, but KD, you, you weren't a missionary, and yet you've known this tactic too. So where would you have learned it if you didn't, if you didn't go to missionary, tra- missionary Training Center? Is that what it's called? The yeah. MTC? Yeah. Um, I think for sure you're taught in church to doubt your doubts before you doubt your faith. Um, that's something mm-hmm. that's said and you doubt other people's doubts before you doubt your own faith. Um, mm-hmm. and yeah, that's definitely certainly ingrained into the culture too. I've mentioned this a couple of times, but you're told that people leave not be, be not because the church isn't true, but because they've been offended or they've been, you know, they, they kind of feel unloved or, and so we're taught as Mormons to reach back out to them, try to fellowship them back in, you know, things like that. So. Okay. I've heard you, I've heard you use that phrase, which that's actually a Mormon thing, not a Christian thing. So explain that when you say you, we need someone to fellowship him back in. What does that mean? Um, it just means like somebody who's gone inactive. So, okay. so somebody who has not officially like left the church and uh, made that known. Instead, maybe they just don't come to church that often, or they've sort of distanced themselves from their neighbors. And so that does come up in ward councils, right? So like that's talked about like, Oh, family so and so. We haven't seen them in church for a while. We should do a checkup on them. And mm. and if someone goes there and um, hears brother so and so say, "Well, I've just got questions," then then they would maybe send out some 
Send the cavalry yeah, to their send house. Out and, something yeah. like maybe missionaries or uh, elders quorum president to try to, you know, settle those doubts and fellowship mm. them back in, help them feel loved, help them feel part of the community. Um, yeah, that type of thing. Yeah, I mean, it's not, I'm not, it's not a bad thing. It's just a, it's a term that I, I've heard you guys both use a couple times that is not a, it's not like lingo in the Christian community. And it maybe, maybe the equivalent lingo would be like reach out to them. Hey, you should reach out to them. But is it a little bit more formal than that? Or is that basically what it is? I mean, it can be just an outreach. It, sometimes it's more formal. It depends on um, who's asking and, and what the assignment is. But uh, but yeah, fellowshipping is, I, I think, the term in Mormonism that just basically just means like keep tabs on them, let them know that you love them, let them know that you're there for them, and also report back to the bishopric next mm, week. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, what does it feel like to the person being fellowshipped? Can do they feel like a mark? Do they feel? Oh, do they feel like there's a target on their back? Yeah. They, most often they'll feel, like you said, like marked. Um, they'll mm. feel uh, like someone is checking a box or mm. what what have you. But um, nothing wrong with with reaching out to your neighbors, seeing how they're doing. But obviously, the the motive behind it is to get them to come back to church. Um, which for a Mormon, that's not a bad motive, right? Um, they believe it's the one and only true church with saving ordinances. So that's a, it's a pretty big deal and pretty weighty. I got so many questions for you guys, but let's, let's just take a break and talk about what was in your box of doubts. And I, you know, for the listeners who, who are coming out of Mormonism, I, you know, we're not going to try, we're going to try not to be offensive. We're not going to be quoting any anti-Mormon literature here. Let's actually just go to the Gospel Topics essays. This is going to be just a little quick little summary of some of the episodes we've covered on the podcast already, but let's just hit these real quick for folks. And the first one on our list is the Book of Mormon translation. Why why was that in your box of doubts? Yeah, so so the Book of Mormon is the keystone of the LDS religion. It is the most important book on the face of the earth, is what Joseph Smith said. And so for me, it was the most important book for me. I've read that book more than any other book on the earth, right? And it was so important that I understood how it came to be. And so as I, um, initially, I, I just believed that Joseph Smith translated it by the gift and power of God. That's what I taught on my mission. That's what I'm told to teach my students in seminary. And then um, I started to question when, you know, when I'd heard that he translated it with a seer stone and... Um, I remember talking to my parents about that. My mom obviously had a lot of information about the seer stone. And so I was like, okay, cool. He used a seer stone. I'm sure that, um, you know, Old Testament prophets use stuff like that too. Like we're good. Right. And then, uh, and then I read the gospel topics essay. And when I read that essay about how the book more was translated, I realized a few things. One, I realized that the seer stone that he used, the stone, is the same stone he used when he was taking people on treasure digs. Now they hide it in a footnote, but when I went to this footnote, my mind was blown because what I what I studied and what I learned was that Joseph Smith was taking people on fraudulent treasure digs as a teenager. Now, he also claims to have seen God and Jesus as a teenager. He also claims to have been, you know, visit receiving visits from Moroni around the same time, okay? that he's got this golden record. So during this time, uh, I guess his young adult days, he was taking people on treasure digs, telling them that he could see treasure in a stone. He would put the stone in a hat. He would tell them he could see treasure. They would pay him. They would go dig for the treasure. He would then tell them that an angel took the treasure away or that a spirit took the treasure away because they didn't do the ritual right. He would then go to the next town and do the exact same thing over again, take their money, and go to the next town and do it again. So, okay, so he's using this stone and a hat trick to get people to pay him money, and he would take people on fake treasure digs. Well then... Okay, so hold on, hold on, Bo. Let me, let me break in, because I could hear the Mormon listener getting anxious right now. I just want to confirm okay. something. Everything you're saying right now is from the Gospel Topics essays or from the footnotes on the yes. Gospel Topics essays. Official yes. Mormon stuff, yes, not yes, anti-Mormon yes, yes, stuff. Absolutely. And that's, that's why my mind was blown at this point, because I was like, holy smokes, I did not realize. I had no idea that Joseph Smith was... A money digger. All of it. All it says in the Gospel Topics essay, by the way, is it says, like others in his day, he used 
the, the, like a stone, like a, a seer stone, um, to look for lost objects and buried treasure. That's what it says. This is going off memory. I'm almost positive that was word for word, but that's what it says in the gospel topics essay. But then in the footnote, you follow it and it gives you the actual history, which is that he was taking people on fraudulent treasure digs. Okay. So he's taking people on treasure digs, looking at the stone, the hat, he, then <laughs> that's the main mechanism he uses in the translation of the Book of Mormon. It even says it in this essay that Joseph uses this stone, puts it in a hat, looks in the hat, reads aloud the words, right? And then Oliver Cowdery writes down the words. So is he reading from the golden plates? No. Is he looking at the ancient hieroglyphs? No. He's looking at this stone in a hat that he used to rip people off. And then, you know what's so interesting about this whole thing? At the end, when he's done translating the Book of Mormon, what happens to this golden record? He says an angel took it away. Like, I just, that whole thing blew my mind. I was like, oh my gosh, ah, I got to throw this in a box and just toss it away. Because that, 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 uh, I can't even put it in the words. That blew up my, um, but yeah, my, my view in how the Book of Mormon was translated and in mm-hmm. the book itself. All of a sudden, I, I started to doubt the book that was the keystone of my religion because mm-hmm. of the history that the church was now admitting to. Okay, so you 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 read the essay on that. You you your box. You pull your box of doubts out. You throw it in there. Yeah. Do you come home with the box of doubts and say, <laughs> "KD, no. you gotta you gotta see," or is this still just like you at work in between seminary classes? Yeah you know, doing your research because you want to help your students. And now you're starting to have your own little crisis of faith. That's, that's right. So then I moved okay. on to the next one. The next topic that I studied was, I was like, I was on this translation kick. So I was like, okay, hang on. If the book of Mormon translation was weird, then what about the, the translation of the book of Abraham? Because I actually had had people tell me to look into the translation of the book of Abraham and never did because I was worried about anti-Mormon stuff. So I was like, oh, cool. The church published this thing. I'm going to read it. So I read it and another doubt just explodes, right? Because I read this thing and it says, you know, it tells me about the ancient Egyptian papyrus scroll, which I always knew about. I always knew that Joseph bought him off this guy who was basically like a traveling museum. Um, Now, the part that I didn't know was that we still have uh, some of these higher, like the the record, the, the papyrus scrolls, and that they've been translated by Egyptologists and that they have nothing to do with Abraham. They're a simple ancient burial text that you would find in, in any sarcophagus in Egypt. Uh, that he mistranslated the facsimile, he mistranslated the words on the page, and that the book of Abraham was completely fictitious and made up by Joseph Smith. So the, church, the church's spin on this is, and again, I'm, 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 not, uh, I'm trying not to be offensive here, what the church says in response in this essay is that, well, we use the word translation, but, you know, it's, it's, it's likely that Joseph used um, the, the ancient Egyptian papyrus scroll to receive revelation on Abraham. But that's not what Joseph said. Joseph said that this was written by the hand of Abraham. So anyway, that was another tick in, in the box of doubts. Then I studied polygamy. Oh man, that was wild because polygamy was something I always had an issue with. KD, you always had an issue with it. Yep. And when I studied it, that was, that was kind of like the 800 pound gorilla that I, or the elephant in the room, I should say. That was the elephant in the room. I didn't ever wanted to admit that it was there. And Wait, what we, do you mean you had an issue? What do you mean when you say you both had an issue with it? Like you thought you th- you didn't think Joseph Smith did it because you thought it was a terrible thing, like yes. most listeners would think. Yes, I thought it was terrible. I thought it was okay. awful that it was a part of church history, and I thought because you knew was... Brigham Young, you knew you knew Brigham Young did it, but but you didn't think Joseph Smith did it. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I'd always been taught to like revere the prophet Joseph Smith, right? And for some reason, maybe Brigham was a little more rough around the edges. <laughs> He probably was. But anyways, uh, yeah, with Joseph, I just never wanted to believe he was a polygamist. Um, And then learning that it wasn't just a few wives, but it was between 30 and 40 is what the church 
says in the article uh, blew my mind. And that the first wife was Fanny Alger, who, again, if you look at the footnote, was a 16-year-old live-in servant. Um, and the more you study about church history, you learn that, that Joseph excommunicated Oliver Cowdery when he called Joseph out for that affair. So mm. there's just a lot there that, uh, that caused me to doubt for sure. Um, again, didn't bring it home to Katie. I knew that she had issues with the polygamy thing, was never comfortable with it being in, in church history. And so then I moved on to studying about the first vision accounts. I always wondered why there were multiple accounts and why they, why some of them didn't reference God and Jesus, why some of them only referenced Jesus, why some of them only referenced like a heavenly messenger. Race and the priesthood, that one always bothered me, knowing that racism was a part of the past. I always just kind of um, chalked it up to, hey, racism existed, just like in the country. So, of course, it existed in the church, too. Uh, but when you go back and actually read what the doctrine that was taught about it, it's even worse. I don't even want to talk about it. It's just terrible stuff. And then... Uh, Temples and Freemasonry, that was the last thing. And, and, mm. and the temple for me, the temple weirded me out the first time I went through the temple. Um, and I would imagine most listeners, <laughs> it did that for them too. And, and, and when I studied the essay about Masonry, I realized, holy smokes, this thing was taken from the Masons. And, and the, anyway, we, we have got a whole, you know... Listeners, obviously, you've been listening for a while. I think we've done an episode on each of these, so you can go back and listen. But, but that was really when my faith started to be completely deconstructed. And I wasn't ready for that because my whole life was wrapped up in the church. And so, so I had to just, I stopped teaching seminary, but I, I just, it took me a decade. I, I, I kept going for almost a decade to church. Okay, so you, yeah, let, let's get this straight because I think this will be, maybe encouraging for our listeners who are totally relating to what you're saying. They're totally relating to, yeah, I've had some of these questions. I've got my own box of doubts, but I'm still in the Mormon church. <laughs> you know, we still go, um, we're, we're still faithful. Maybe, maybe even my spouse doesn't know about it, but maybe at this point my spouse does know about it, or we're both in this together, but we're still we're still struggling to make the big change. I mean, it, so you, you, you studied this stuff, and then you put it in your in your box of doubts, and you continue to go to the Mormon Church for more than a decade. So, what was the like, Bo? I don't know if you can be honest, or Katie, for you at this point. At some point, are you kind of starting to have your own box of doubts as well? Like, Bo, at some point, are you bringing this home to Katie, or is she starting to read this for herself, or did you guys still not really ever talk about this? But I'm sure Katie just had her own things. Yeah, I, I mean. Oh, she taught gospel doctrine. She, she, I, I would help write her lessons for her. There were so many things where mm. we were still all in it, right? We had a bunch of different callings. But I, I did my best to keep it to myself just because mm. I, I, the last thing I wanted was to shake her faith and ruin our marriage and our eternal family that we mm. were working so hard at. So, so yeah, I mean, I'm sure I mentioned things every once in a while, but I think for the most part, I... I just probably didn't fill you in, really. Yeah, I don't think you did. I mean, uh, I had told you about how much polygamy bothered me. That was really apparent. I mean, that bothered me since I was a teenager. Um, and then throughout our marriage, I really struggled with uh, perfectionism. Uh, I think that's mm. my personality, but was probably compounded by the works-based worthiness that I was trying to follow. Um, I struggled a lot with that. Um, I didn't really realize that, that I was struggling with the worthiness part, because again, I'd never, I'd never known any other way to, to be religious. Um, but I think over time, you know, you would mention things to me like, Oh, don't worry about you know, we don't need, have to go to the temple every month, <laughs> you know, yeah. or like we don't have to read the book of Mormon every year. We don't, you know, things like that. I was like, really? We don't, is that, that's okay. Okay. That's okay. Okay. <laughs> you know, things like that would, would, would be said. And I'd be like, Oh, okay. That's a new perspective for me. I thought that's what we had to do to be happy, 
you know. Um, and mm. then as you get older, you know, you start to see like, oh, people are normal, happy, wonderful, and they're not going to the temple once a month and they're not, you know, and not to, not to like say that's, you know, whatever, but I think that's when I started to realize like, oh, okay, mm. maybe there is a little bit of room for some more doubts, which had started to creep in for me. I did teach gospel doctrine. I taught old Testament and Bo did help me prepare those, but, um, uh, we had gone through like a seriously difficult time right before I got called to that, which had made me question, um, like question the plan of happiness. And then I got put in that calling for, um, old Testament gospel doctrine and I started to realize that the temple in the Old Testament was nothing like the temple that I went to. Mm-hmm. And so things started to kind of creep in for me. And I, I think we both sort of avoided those conversations to try to keep the status quo. Why, why do people stay? Like what? Yeah, so why? I mean, it's not like, it's not like you're going to church for an hour a week just so our Mormon or our non-Mormon listeners understand this. Because I probably our Christian listeners are like, well, I know people go to church and just go through the motions. To me, this is so much more than that. Because we're talking about you're serving. These are your callings. You can't turn down your callings and you're not. You're giving, you're tithing more than 10% to the church. You're, there's so many, uh, there's so much more involved. So like, what is... What is the pull? What's the draw? What kept you there for so long? Yeah, I, I think there's a couple of things. One, it's it's all you know, <laughs> and it's and you're taught that it's all there is. Uh, I think that's probably the first thing, right? The the second though, and the thing that I hear most um, as I you know as I talk to people who who are considering you know Christianity or Mormonism or what have you, I, I think one of the things that we hear the most is eternal families. Uh, that, that's probably the main thing, right? That we hear over and over. I don't want to lose my family. I don't want to lose the community. I don't want to lose my friends. That that's really, I think, the main thing that that people face. Yeah, when when they've they've kind of their shelf is broke. <laughs> they've got this massive box of doubts. Maybe they've studied some of this stuff and they realize, holy smokes, I don't I. Joseph Smith might have made this up. I don't know what to do about that, but I'm going to keep going to church because, you know, in, in the Mormon church, you're sort of taught you can work your way through it. And when I say work, I mean actually like physically work your way through it. You can pray your way through it, study your way through it, go to church your way through it, go to the temple your way through it, right? Um, but but yeah, I think the main draw, the main pull for people is they don't want to lose their family. I think it's a lot of, um, you know, when it first starts to fall apart, it, if if everything, so for us, everything we've built our life on, our whole family, we were married in the temple, our entire worldview is is definitely wrapped up in this. And so it's very difficult to see any other way out. But then there's it's also really hard to admit like, I think I had it wrong, right? Like to to say I had it wrong. And then th- also there is some shame that comes along with this, maybe feeling as though you aren't spiritual enough, that you don't understand the gospel enough. You know, maybe those are the reasons you're not getting it while so-and-so across the street seems to have the perfect life and have it all together, you know, while you're over here struggling and you don't seem to understand, oh man, maybe if I could just do more, then I would be more spiritual. So, and both for you, there's this added thing as a dad, right? As a husband and as a dad, speak to that just for a second, because I think there's even more, I don't know if shame's the right word, but there's more pressure at least for you to stay because yeah. you had the priesthood. Right. Yeah. So explain that real quick. Yeah, the, the priesthood's a big deal, right? Because men in the Mormon church have what's called the priesthood, which we're taught in Mormonism is the power of God to act in his name and to carry out his will. So as the patriarch of the home, as the man of the home, as the priesthood 
holder in the home, um, yeah, you you have kind of the added weight of, you know, you're, you're expected to stay worthy so that you can provide blessings, um, so that you can uh, provide, like set, setting apart your, your child when they, when they get to the right age, so that you can baptize your children, um, so that you can give like blessings of healing or comfort or, so the added shame for men, if they were to either go less active or leave the church is, is there because people judge you immediately. Like, oh, this guy, this guy must have an issue with X, Y, Z because he wasn't there to baptize his kid. Or this guy must, you know, have, uh, must be terrible because he's not there to, to give a blessing, right? And it, so it's, there's definitely an added weight and added pressure um, for men in the church to, to stay uh, because of that responsibility. Okay, so I think we've done a pretty good job of setting the table with all the tension involved. So let's finish this episode by just asking us like a really simple question. And I want you guys to speak from the heart because I, I know some of our listeners who have these doubts, maybe they even have more doubts now after listening to some of these summary statements you guys have made. So my question to end it with is, was it worth it? I mean, we know what you did. It, it's almost almost exactly a year ago, you finally took the step. You left the Mormon church, which was so difficult. You ended up finding a Christian church, a Bible teaching church. You came to faith in Jesus. You got baptized. Your kids are now going to a brand new church. You guys are going to a brand new church, but it did. You had to have hard conversations with your family. You you lost some community. You lost, I mean, not, you didn't want to, but you kind of got a little bit shunned. Your kids got a little bit shunned. People at your former ward probably think you're lazy now, or you, or they have who knows, you know, whatever they're saying at the ward. All these things. Was it worth it? Yeah, yeah. Look, the the thing that we did with our box of doubts was we we went to God with them. And, and God led us to, to his word. God led us to, to his truth. And that led us to a biblical church, right? Um, to be part of the body of Christ. It's, it's phenomenal. It's, uh, it's funny to hear you, I guess, summarize what's happened in the last year. That's wild to think about. But, um, but yeah, what, what you do with your box of doubts is is uh, you go to God, you rely on His Word, you rely on the Bible, and you uh, you search for truth, and 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 it's just my belief that you'll find it. I, I think um, th- this last year has been the greatest. It's been hard. It's been really hard. It's been really hard to have hard conversations with with family and friends, and uh, it's it's been hard to receive the judgment in the community. It's been hard to hear rumors that we're getting a divorce. It's been hard to. Uh, you are all, all sorts of things um that uh that that go on uh you know in in tight knit mormon communities when people don't follow the status quo but what's on the other side is just a beautiful faith in Jesus a realization that his word is trustworthy a realization that the bible is reliable and and when you study the bible you you learn about god's grace you learn about uh the power the true power that, that faith in Christ brings and the salvation that comes from a belief in Jesus. And that that's worth anything, right? That's, that's what life is about. And, and as much as I love my family, uh, my faith in Jesus is what saves me and it's what adopts me into God's family. So this whole thing about eternal families only being a Mormon church thing, like it's actually... It's actually a, a distortion of the truth that's taught in the Bible, right? What the Bible teaches is that when you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you are adopted into God's family. Like, that's the eternal family that we should be focused on. And uh, anyway, and I'm just grateful for it. it it's been a wild year. <laughs> but I'm grateful, honestly, grateful that that box of doubts built up enough for me to question and enough for me to, to turn to Jesus. Yeah, I I echo all of that. I think um I think for me I took my box of doubts and 
the weight of trying to work for my worthiness and and I was gifted grace. Like, I don't know how else to say it. I was given 100,000 fold, you know, um, what I had before and what I didn't realize was available. And I'm just so grateful for God's grace because although it has been a really hard year and although we've been through hard things, all of it has been wrapped up in grace and I, we've been able to weather all of it with, with God's grace. And the only way we've been able to weather it really is with his grace. And that way we're able to really love and show love, right? And not break bridges, not trying not to, you know, obviously we can't control what other people do, but while, while we move through this, it's been amazing to see what God has brought to us. We've, we've lost a community, but we've gained a huge community of believers. We've had to, you know, well, we've lost friends, but we've gained so many more. We've, we've just gotten, been given so much. And I'm just grateful for that. And even though it has been hard in some ways, it is 100% worth it. I just can't believe it's been a year, only a year. It feels like it's, I've, it feels like I've known all these wonderful people forever. Yeah, that was well said. Um, all right. So, so the person out there listening that's got this box of doubts, uh, whatever that box is full of, um, one, you're not alone. <laughs> Bunch of people have those same doubts. Uh, but, but what I, what I would just encourage you to do is, um, to stop putting it in the corner and forgetting about it. Uh, that there was a decade of my life. I could have been, uh, a believer in biblical truth. And, and, and it's my hope that rather than wait another decade, uh, that, that those out there that have that box of doubts that, that you open it up, you study it, you turn to God and, and you find truth. Hey, listeners, stay tuned for next week. We're going to be covering Preach My Gospel, which is the missionary lessons of the Mormon Church. They just released the new Preach My Gospel this year, and we're excited. We're going to go lesson by lesson, understanding what they teach and if it's biblical. So stay tuned.